Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about separation and divorce related to domestic abuse. But before we jump into today's content, let's talk a little bit about the opportunities available for you at chrismoles.org. In particular, uh, PeaceWorks University. I talk to you about PeaceWorks University each week, but I still believe it's your next best step. Uh, If you enjoy what you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, then please consider joining us in PeaceWorks University. You can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, well, today we're going to dive into a, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a difficult subject, as much as I would call it a, um, a uh, and, and often avoided subject, and that is the idea of separation and divorce when it comes to domestic abuse. And this is one of those issues that within the church, I think we have a hard time talking about it in large part because of fear. We really don't want to hit any type of slippery slope or process by which we're encouraging people to get divorced. And it's interesting, all the years I've been doing this, I I can say there have been moments uh, where individuals have accused me of promoting divorce, and certainly that's not my goal. Uh, However, I am distinct in some ways in that I view divorce as a tool, a a uh, tool that was given by God to protect individuals. And uh, it's probably the last tool in our tool belt, but it's still there. And so it is important for us to talk about it. The framework's important too. It's like, where do you begin when you're discussing an issue like separation and divorce? And I think you begin with the real subject matter. It's kind of like when we reduce abuse to a marriage problem, we've missed the point, right? When we Uh, treat abuse like a marriage problem, we end up not addressing the real problem. The problem is abuse. Domestic abuse is the problem. Uh, I'm not suggesting divorce is the solution, but I am suggesting that divorce is not the problem, nor is marriage the problem. Abuse is the problem. Because in our world, I think it's important that we clearly articulate that abuse in any form is a distortion of the way God intended things to be and is in fact sin. And one thing that I've heard uh, some of my friends say in the past that abuse is not only a sin, it's a very unique form of sin because of the hard-heartedness required to commit acts of abuse. And so when we think about domestic abuse in particular, I think it's important that we begin our discussion with this, this overarching theme. Before we talk about the context of the problem, before we talk about addressing the problem, before we talk about responses to the problem, we should really identify the problem as sin. Abuse is sin. Why do I bring that up? Because if if abuse is sin, then we know how to respond to it. We have biblical means for responding to sin. Uh, when we think about the idea of being sinned against, we have all kinds of uh, prescriptions and descriptions in the scriptures to help us with that. When we think about individuals who are committing sin, we have all kinds of instructions to deal with it. 
Now, the interesting thing, again, and I, I want to just give a caveat here real quick, too many times we uh, we don't follow our own advice, especially with domestic abuse, and we accept confession without repentance, we accept uh, contrition without godly sorrow, we accept tears without the fruit of repentance. And so it's important that we actually follow our own standards when addressing the sin of domestic abuse. Uh, but at the same time, we have some really godly advice to how we respond. I think about uh, Romans 12, 21. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And while we're not going to be talking about resistance, we are talking about you know, general responses. And even for us as pastors and helpers and leaders, it's important that we overcome evil with good. We don't fall in the same trap as the abuser. Even if somebody's being victimized, if they're a believer, we really encourage them to resist well. We think all resistance is good in that uh, we will resist to evil, but we prefer resistance that is holy and righteous and sanctified. And what I mean by that is that resistance that points the arrows back on the oppressor, resistance that points the finger back to the sin. Uh, we would advise against resistance that, you know, continues to cloud the waters, not, not sinning against the sinner, but responding to the sinner in such a way that their sin is highlighted. And I think that's a good thing. And that's really the only way we're going to overcome evil is by doing good. Here, here's a couple good responses that my friend Leslie Vernick has said in the past. Uh, number one, it's good to protect yourself from violent people. That's a good thing. If someone's trying to harm you, it's actually a good thing to protect yourself. Not necessarily through self-defense, although that could be part of it, but through legal means, civil means, uh, accountability means, consequences, boundaries, etc. It's good to protect yourself. It's also good uh, to expose the deeds of darkness, to shed light on a problem. That's a good thing. Uh, I'm at this the time of this recording, you know, I've experienced some frustration uh, with with the church in general and some folks specifically who seem to want to avoid accountability. And the reality is you'll you'll never properly address the darkness without the light. So without shining the light on your own sin and your own failures and your own problems, you're not going to receive accountability and an opportunity to change and grow. And so it's a good thing to expose the deeds of darkness. And third, it's good to speak the truth. Now we want to speak the truth in love, but it's good to speak the truth. Number four, it's good to stop someone from sinning against you when possible. That's a good thing. Now sometimes I think we have this suffering mentality that, you know, all suffering is beneficial, but I would suggest that when avoidable, it's okay to avoid suffering, right? It's okay. And so it's a good thing to confront sin. It's a good thing to stop someone from sinning. It's also good for someone to experience consequences. That's a good thing. And so we want to respond to evil with good. And there's plenty of good things and good responses that we can bring to bear. It's good to see repentance. It's good to see the fruits of repentance before stepping back into a relationship. And it's good to be gracious to your enemy. It is. It's good to, to be gracious while not exposing yourself to further harm.
Now, why do I bring all that up? Because among the tools of responding to domestic abuse that we have at our disposal, uh, the ones that are that, that are kind of difficult for churches to wrap their head around as being good or helpful are separation and divorce. So let me just share with you when I recommend separation. I recommend separation. And again, it's not my decision. Couples, um, or I should say victims, are the ones that should be empowered to make decisions. And victims know better than I ever will about uh, whether or not to to leave or to stay. I rely heavily, again, on my friend Leslie Vernick, who gives great advice, I think, about leaving well and stay, staying well. Whatever decision we make, we want to make that decision well and respond well. And so when, when I see first a lack of safety, I would ask individuals to consider separation. Are you in danger? Um, second, when physical problems uh, are manifesting because of ex- extreme stress, you're having major health problems, some pastors and leaders ha- just haven't witnessed this up close or they haven't seen the connection. But I just want to tell you, if you're a people helper listening, some victims of domestic abuse are under such extreme stress, they're developing major digestive problems, heart problems, blood pressure issues, anxiety-related physical manifestations, autoimmune disorders, and the list could go on and on and on. If the stress of the environment is creating physical harm, then I would recommend uh, considering a separation. Now, again, I come back to the fact that it's not my decision. This is another area where well-meaning leaders step in and start dictating terms. I don't suggest dictating terms. Now, granted, if there's a high risk of lethality, someone's life is in danger, that intervention is much more urgent and much more um, pressing. Uh but in the vast majority of cases, while it is still pressing and it's still urgent to help, um, a victim may be more comfortable knowing where their abuser is rather than the mystery of not knowing uh, or any other uh, reasons such as financial or uh, the children as reasons to stay. And so you can make separation an option, but it's not something that they have to, to take. I also consider separation possible when emotional stress is unbearable. Individuals can't think straight. Crazy making has um, impacted them in such a way that the decision making is is hampered um, or as a consequence. Now, you have to be careful when you issue it as a consequence, right? When, when you've tried everything and your partner still won't respond, this is not an ultimatum type thing. This is not a manipulative tactic. It's a natural consequence of safety. And so, um, yeah, I would say it's a possible consequence. I wouldn't go in with high expectations, though, right? I wouldn't make it expectation-driven. Now, some will say, well, Chris, if you allow for separation, and granted, consider this, depending on what state you're in, uh, separation can be detrimental to a couple unless you have the the recourse of like a legal separation because you can risk financial ruin, you can risk custody issues, all of that. And so it's important to know, you know, what resources are available within the civil side as far as protecting you and the resources available to you. But I'll get pastors and leaders who will respond with uh, the statement, well, God hates divorce. 
And that's an interesting statement. I think it's completely overused. And I won't spend a lot of time. I've talked about this in the past. But if you just consider the context of Malachi 2, that's where the, the statement God hates divorce comes from. I think what you'll find is the hatred of Malachi 2 is really directed at the treacherous husband, right, who divorces his wife frivolously, who uh, divorces his wife as an act of violence. In fact, it's funny how that passage in numerous translations really points the finger at God's hatred of violence, and in particular, this type of divorce. I think it's a little off-putting when we say God hates divorce, and then we continue to read the Old Testament and see that God himself was divorced. Or uh, we read case law where Moses allowed for divorce. And then we read Jesus, <clears throat> who tells us that God gave uh, Moses the you know divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts. And I think it's a little tricky for us just to blanketly say God hates divorce, especially when the passage seems to indicate itself that God hates a treacherous husband who puts away his wife violently. So... Um, yeah, just just a note. I think we need to step away from kind of the bumper sticker approach to uh, divorce and marriage and really consider uh, what the Bible has to say about it. Another um, interesting passage that comes up a lot in this discussion is uh, Mark 10. It's where the Pharisees test Jesus. I think that's the key to the whole passage, quite frankly, is that the Pharisees are coming trying to trick Jesus. They're using a Oh, a very commonly held uh, view, or I should say they're a commonly held debate between two of the leading rabbinic forces of the day. Uh, one view we might call the easy school, one view we might call the rigid school. However you look at it, it's based on Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, and he finds something indecent about her. He writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from the house. So the question that was being asked in Jesus' day, when Jesus was walking the earth teaching, the question that was being asked was, what does something indecent mean? There was a group who believed that something uh, meant anything, that if a husband found anything undesirable in his wife, and imagine the pressure that must put on women, holy cow, that anything, you burn the beans, you, you didn't look the way I want you to look, you said something a certain way, that type of, you know, just ease at which somebody can cast someone out is pretty devastating. And um, it had effects, I'm sure, in particular on women. The other school, however, took a much more stringent view of the passage to say indecent meant infidelity. And there was almost a finality to it. Like if you read some of the, the commentary surrounding this, there was this idea that if your wife commits adultery, you have to put her away. Like that's the right thing to do is to divorce someone who commits adultery. So the Pharisees come to Jesus with this test and it's like, hey, which side of the fence are you on? Are you on the anything side or just adultery side? And Jesus says, well, what did Moses command you? Uh, and they said, Moses permitted that a man write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then Jesus responded, right? It's because your hearts were hard. 
Like that's why Moses gave you a certificate of divorce is because your hearts were hard. God knew that women in particular would be vulnerable to the whims of men who had power and control and that simply putting them away would be devastating. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that that's what Jesus is saying, that hard-hearted men were the reason why you have divorce. He goes on to cite the creative order, and this was where some people differ. I, I think the passage is relatively clear, but I'm not a theologian in that regard. I'm I'm a pastor and a practitioner, but, you know, he says, so, you know, a husband and wife, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. To me, that sounds like an imperative. It sounds to me like, why would you break the covenant? Don't do that. Don't break the covenant. And I know some people say it's more of uh, an indicative type statement. It's like, well, who can? Nobody can. Um, And either way, Right, whether you're a permanence view like marriage, there's no mar- no remarriage, no divorce, or you're an exception view person that yeah, for some exceptions, Christians can get divorced. The burden of safety still falls on the church. I think that's an important note. Now, I happen to be somebody who reads a passage like this and says, yeah, absolutely, you should not break the covenant. God joined you together. No one should break the covenant. Um, you, you shouldn't you should be faithful to your spouse. You shouldn't neglect your spouse. You should take care of your spouse, right? Um, others read it and say there's there's no um, recourse. There, no one can. And it, it puts less of a burden on the individuals in the marriage and much more on the bond itself. I guess for me, whatever wherever you fall, you still have a responsibility to care for victims. I think if you're a permanence view person and you're leading a church that is a permanence view where there's no no divorce, then I think your burden of protection has a few more layers to it. I think you need to be even more purposeful because divorce is not an option for you, for folks who are incredibly vulnerable, who are being abused, who are being um, cheated on, who are being harmed. For those of us who have some exception views, it's certainly not the first tool in the tool bag, but it may be one that's at our disposal. Real quick, uh, Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy passage is really only one Old Testament passage. And this kind of gets me in trouble, and rightfully so in a way. I understand. I was taught this too. You can't argue from silence. The Bible needs to speak clearly about things. Uh, However, the Pharisees never tested Jesus on the Exodus 21 passage only on the Deuteronomy passage. So there is an interesting piece of case law in Exodus that's worth looking at um, where Moses says in regards to a slave wife, this is interesting when you read case law, uh, if it applies to the person in the law, it applies to everyone in the system above them. For instance, Paul says uh, in regards to paying your pastor, you know, don't muzzle the ox. The idea is that in case law, the beast of burden was allowed to eat while they work. So if if oxen are rewarded for their work, then obviously pastors should be too, right? Because a pastor is above the ox in the system, right? Well, in this case, Moses uses a very specific woman to offer this case law. It's a slave. So it's a slave woman who's then given to a son as a wife, okay? So she's enslaved, and then 
married by one of the sons. And that, I mean, that's a horrible situation in and of itself. But, but understand if it applies to her, it applies to everybody. And uh, Moses goes on to say, if he marries another woman, so the son marries another woman, he must not deprive the first of food, clothing, or marital rights. So he's got to continue to provide for food and shelter and Social Security, which is, you know, having kids. If he does not provide her with these three things, then she's free to go without payment. There's a uh, option here for this wife to seek safety and shelter because her husband's not providing it. So the case law gives um, an option for divorce uh, regarding neglect. Okay, I bring that up because you know Jesus wasn't challenged on this point. And if you read, uh, let's say, what is it, 1 Corinthians 7, I think Paul references some very similar things. And as I read, it really feels like Paul has Exodus 21 in mind as he's talking about abandonment in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so I bring that up to say it seems as if that passage wasn't debated, that neglect that led to harm um, was sufficient for divorce. And that seems to coincide with Paul's understanding of abandonment. So what am I saying? Well, just to wrap things up, what I'm saying is we will have to have this discussion. If we're working cases of domestic abuse in the church, divorce, remarriage, separation, they're all going to come up. And for me, I do discuss separation when people are in physical danger, when people's bodies are shutting down from the stress, when they're cognitively and emotionally not able to function because of the stress, or when it is the next natural consequence to promoting or inviting change. Divorce, then, would be the the final consequence in that sequence where an individual is unwilling to repent, unwilling to reconcile properly, unwilling to, you know, trust Jesus, then more than likely 1 Corinthians 7 applies where an unbeliever uh, is not willing to live at peace with the believer. And Exodus 21, along with our understanding of uh, the hardness of men's hearts gives us at least, in my opinion, enough uh, evidence to discuss divorce as an option for cases of domestic abuse. Now, I get, too, that your church, your leadership may not be there. And here's something that, that I want you to hear loud and clear. That's okay. As long as you have a well-organized, articulable, understandable process that you're going to take folks through, it, it, it makes sense. I don't want you to deny or walk away from your theology, but I do want you to respond and have and provide safety for victims in line with your theology. Too many times we're allowing our theological understanding of divorce to force victims back into irreconcilable relationships that are destructive, damaging, dangerous, and deadly. So be sure to have these discussions, flesh it out, investigate passages like Exodus 21 and 1 Corinthians 7. Take a look at the concepts of the hardness of men's heart 
And always keep in the forefront of your mind that abuse, and in our case, domestic abuse, is sin. And how do we respond to sin? Thank you guys so much for listening today. I really appreciate y'all. Please continue to support the PeaceWorks podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Let the platform know how much you appreciate uh, the work that we do week after week. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. And until next time, God bless.